I V M. This Garuda standard of Vasudeva, the God of Gods, was erected here by the devotee Heliodorus, the son of Dion, a man of Takshila, sent by the great Yona king Antialkidas as ambassador to King Kashiputra Bhagabhadra, the savior, son of the princess from Varanasi, in the fourteenth year of his reign. The inscription that you've just heard can still be found near the great site of Sanchi, home to one of the world's most ancient Buddhist stupas on an almost equally ancient pillar. It has stood there silently for nearly 2200 years. It was set up at a time when Buddhism was the most powerful religion in the Indian subcontinent, but it long outlived Buddhism. It was commissioned by a man whose ancestors came to Afghanistan from Greece and from there moved to the Punjab. He was an ambassador to an ancient Indian king who was writing in an Indian language that he worshipped an Indian god on a pillar that would have been read by Indians. Why this pillar has survived and not the thousands that must have proudly dotted the landscape of the country, only the shadowy forces of randomness and probability can explain. But it has stood the test of time and it tells us about one of ancient India's most dynamic and multicultural periods. If only the silent Garuda eagle that once crowned this pillar could speak. But it cannot. So let me tell you the story of these Greeks who became Indians. It is a story that will take us from the battles of Alexander the Great to the debates of Buddhist monks. A story of the beginnings of the civilization that we now call India. I'm Anirudh Kanisati. And welcome to Echoes. It is a stormy night in the year 326 BCE on the banks of the river Jhelum in Punjab. A Raja stands along the banks of the raging waters, his bodyguards holding up a forlorn parasol and shivering as they are whipped by the icy rain. The Raja, king of the Parava tribe, barely notices. All his attention is concentrated on the far bank where a vast army of foreign barbarians is camped. These smelly creatures, he is told, are Yavanas from far away lands to the west. Their camp glimmers with torches and even across the roaring torrent of the river he can hear the sounds of drums and singing in a strange tongue. He would be willing to bet that all they are doing is drinking themselves stupid. His lips curl with contempt. Suddenly, he hears cries in the distance. Trumpets are being sounded in his camp and men are calling out in fear. The Raja turns hurriedly and calls for his elephants. Within minutes, he learns that the accursed Yavanas have crossed the river at a fort to the south. Within an hour, he learns that the storm and the drums were just a cover-up. The diabolical leader of the Yavanas has tricked him and crossed the river to his north as well. His army will have to fight on two sides. The first trickles of fear drip into his heart. In the thick of battle, with mad elephants screaming as they are impaled on 20-foot-long pikes, the barbarians chant as their freakishly disciplined ranks advance foot by foot, chewing through his army like animals at the slaughter. His chariots are stuck in a hell of mud and rain and blood 
and the Yavana cavalry move faster than he has ever seen horses move. Desperate, he orders his personal banner, embroidered with an image of the great hero god of his lands, to be raised. His bodyguards blow their conch shells and roar, Vasudeva, Vasudeva, Vasudeva. The Yavanas falter. A gasp goes through their ranks. He can see a look of recognition in those strange pale eyes. Then he hears a yell. Heracles! 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 Brass trumpets blow and the demons resume their attack. The Raja does not surrender. The next morning, surrounded by fields of mourning and dying men, he is forced to submit to the Yavana king. This crafty opponent of his is young, though he fought like a general of vast experience and skill. He cannot be more than 30 years old, though his face is covered in the scars of drinking and battle, his clothes filthy, his eyes bloodshot, there is an unspeakable, animalistic charisma to him. His cheering men call him Alexandros Megas. And to the Raja's surprise, this barbarian compliments him on his bravery and confirms his rule over his ancestral kingdom. Then he leaves and the Raja never sees him again, though he never forgets him. Alexandros, the madman whom Western history will later adore as Alexander the Great, doesn't forget the Raja either. Stories of the Indians who worshipped the hero god Hercules go back with him. And after he dies, the Greeks who stayed behind in India worship this Indian god too, making of him a new deity, Krishna Hercules. A learned man once said that the Greeks came and the Greeks saw, but India conquered. It seems like a pretty strange fusion of cultures for Greeks and Indians to interact and become something new something different. But in the ancient world, where national boundaries didn't exist and kings were easily able to uproot and move their subjects around, such fusions aren't actually that rare. What really makes the Greeks interesting is where they lived, at the frontier of three cultural and economic regions, Central Asia, Persia and India. Alexander, after his exhausting battle with the power of Araja, went limping back west and died soon after in Iraq. His unwieldy empire was split between his generals. The unfortunate soul who inherited the east was called Seleucus Nicator or Seleucus the Victor, which is really ironic considering that he was defeated by the newly emerged Indian empire of the Mauryas, which, like his, was modelled on Persian lines. The Mauryas maintained a tenuous hold in Afghanistan, but didn't really have any lasting influence over Bactria, nestled in the mountains beyond the Hindu Kush. The death of Ashoka Maurya in the 200s BC served as an opportunity for smaller regional kingdoms and unleashed an era of political change as well as religious movement and diversity. In fact, this era was a period of flux, innovation and evolution across the Eurasian world as Alexander's successors continued their squabbles, local dynasties asserted themselves across Persia and India, and China's civil wars began to resolve themselves into an imperial model that would make a lasting impact on the global political economy. 
but more about that later. Now, the North Indian plains were devolving into smaller states, but a more organized and capable state system, unlike the ancient tribal republics and kingdoms that the Nandas and Mauryas had subsumed into their early empires. To these new states, just as for the Greeks, all territory was fair game. The Greeks came south of the Hindu Kush and attacked Kabul. Soon, they were jostling with local dynasties for control of the wealthy trading region of the Punjab, centered around the city of Takshila in modern Pakistan. And this is where it gets interesting. The Greeks, under their king Menander, allied with Mathura and the Panchalas, who were former vassals of the Mauryas, to attack the Shanga dynasty, which had overthrown the Mauryas in their former capital province of Magadha. The barbarian Greeks must have made quite an impression on the Indians, though we can't be sure about how successful their attempt actually was. Hundreds of years later, the Sanskrit dramatist Kalidasa used these historical memories to great effect in his play Malavikagni Mitram, a romance set during the reign of the first and second Shunga rulers, Pushyamitra and Agnimitra. A letter, along with a gift, arrives from the commander-in-chief, King Pushyamitra. It is handed to his son, King Agnimitra, who is with his wife, Queen Dharini. Oh, my heart is on edge. I hope this news of our son Vasumitra, the commander-in-chief, must have assigned him a serious responsibility. Salutations from the sacrificial grounds. The commander-in-chief Pushyamitra embraces his mighty son Agnimitra and says, Let it be known, I consecrated the Rajasoya rite and released the stallion to Rome unchecked for a year. I appointed Vasumitra as its guardian and surrounded him with a hundred princes. When the horse wandered into the south bank of the Sindhu, it was attacked by a Yavana cavalry contingent. A fierce battle ensued between the two armies. What? How could this have happened? What else does the letter say? Then Vasumitra the archer fought off the foes and returned the royal steed that was taken by force. Oh, thank the gods. My heart is at ease. There's more, Dharani. Now I will continue with the rite, for my grandson has returned the horse, just as Anshuman did for Sagara. Without losing any time and with your mind free of fear, you must come with my dear daughter-in-law to be part of the rite. Tharini, fortune favors us. We are honored. The daring raid of the Indo-Greeks into the Gangetic heartland, roughly around 150 BCE, made such an impact that Kalidasa's audience in 400 CE immediately knew what he was referring to. This was the peak of the Indo-Greek power in the Indian subcontinent, which, if we're being honest, wasn't really that much. But in my view, the political history of the Indo-Greeks, which is a confused jumble of assassinations, raids, wars and marriages among their military aristocracy, is not as important as what they can tell us about the culture of early India. Already, by the late Mauryan period, some of the cults that were later incorporated into full-blown religions were already present in India. We have some evidence from Buddha's nerdiest disciple, Sariputta, in the Niddesha, a commentary upon some early Buddhist sutras. When describing the fragmented religions of those who did not follow the unitary Buddhism, 
he mentions the cults of the minor deity Vasudeva, Agni, Nagas or serpents, Suparnas or giant birds, Yakshas, Asuras, Maharajas, Chandra, Surya, Indra and Brahma. Sariputta specifically mentioned a minor god, Vasudeva, a god that, as we saw, Alexander's armies thought was Hercules and also a name that we now associate with one of the major gods of the Hindu pantheon, Vishnu. So what can the Indo-Greeks tell us about Indian religion at the time? The city of Mathura has been a centre of the Bhagavata religion for thousands of years. Bhagavatism is not the same as modern Vaishnavism, though it worships gods that modern Vaishnavites would recognize. It is focused on the worship of the five hero gods Vasudeva Krishna, Sankarshana Baladeva, Pradyumna, Shambha, and my namesake, Aniruddha. Each of these heroes would at some point have had their own backstories and significance. By the 1st and 2nd centuries BCE, when the Indo-Greeks would have begun to interact with them more frequently, these hero cults had begun to merge and center around two primary divinities, Samkarshana and Vasudeva. Samkarshana or Balarama was famous for his temper and his love for booze. His cult at Mathura must have involved ritual drinking. The legends of Vasudeva Krishna make it quite clear why the Greeks thought he was actually Hercules. Hercules and Krishna are both associated with a club or mace, or gada, reflecting an ancient warrior tradition before the use of swords was widespread. Both Hercules and Krishna were prodigiously strong as babies and as young men, had active demon hunting and romantic careers, and both of them died tragically alone. Krishna, however, evolved into a form associated with much more importance than Hercules ever did, and that is due to the distinctive evolutionary path that the Bhagavata cult took. But evidence certainly points to a very linguistically diverse and pluralistic society. It's not as strange as it may seem. Ancient polytheists didn't really have a clear sense of us versus them, so Greeks and Indians and Sogdians and Bactrians would have seen no contradiction in worshipping each other's gods. They were just worshipping those who were popular, and kings gained popularity by patronizing them. A typical Indian may have worshipped his city's sacred yaksha, fertility deities with delightful names such as Rishyashringa, whose cults may have been even more popular than those of later gods. Sadly, none of the stories and legends of these once popular figures survive, or if they do, they've been incorporated into other legends and we have no way of telling what the original stories actually were. But all this discussion is distracting us from the real big daddy of subcontinental religions of the time, Buddhism. When he died, the Buddha is supposed to have said that his dhamma would soon die out within a thousand years, and the monastic community was obsessed with making sure that didn't happen. Thanks to the patronage of the Mauryan Emperor Ashoka, Buddhist monasteries were able to spread across the subcontinent, creating a wide-ranging network that was also intimately tied to newly emerging urban communities deeply imbuing themselves into the minds of our ancestors, though we have completely forgotten them today. Buddhists were possibly the canniest political figures of ancient India, making it a point to convert kings, or at least claim that they converted kings. And since it's mostly Buddhists who wrote their own history, and it's mostly those sources that survive, we should be a little careful when reading their tall claims of success and popularity. Remember the King Menander who attacked Pataliputra along with the Mathurans? 
ही इज द सब्जेक्ट ऑफ द मिलिंद पन्हा अ पाली टेक्स्ट व्हिच रिकॉर्ड्स हिज डिबेट्स विद द बुद्धिस्ट मंक नागसेना मिनांडर इज नॉट पोर्ट्रेड एज अ बारबरस कॉन्करर बट इज अ सोफिस्टिकेटेड एंड क्यूरियस मैन हु वैंक्विशेस मेनी टीचर्स इन डिबेट बिफोर मीटिंग हिज मैच इन नागसेना दैट्स इंटरेस्टिंग बिकॉज़ नॉर्थ इंडियन सीम टू पोर्ट्रे ग्रीक्स एज बारबेरियंस बट Gandharan Buddhists seem to portray the Greeks as being intellectually sophisticated. This document may well have been written in the region of Gandhara in modern Pakistan and may have served as a popular and effective propaganda tool thanks to its association with a well-regarded historical figure proving that not all kingdoms in the subcontinent saw each other as equals or as allies. Despite that, the Milinda Panha is very erudite. and contains highly sophisticated reasoning and persuasion it may also reflect the general intellectual curiosity and diversity of these times cutting across ethnic and geographical lines how is your reverence known what sir is your name o king i am known as nagasena but that is only a designation in common use for no permanent individual can be found This Nagasena says no permanent individual is implied in his name how is that possible if that is true most venerable nagasena then what lives the righteous life what kills living beings steals commits adultery tells lies or takes a strong drink if there is no permanent individual then there is no doer of good or evil deeds and no result of karma you say that you are called nagasena now what is nagasena is it the hair No great king is it then the nails teeth skin or other parts of the body certainly not then i can discover no nagasena nagasena is an empty sound who is it that we see before us is it a falsehood that your reverence has spoken you sir have been reared in great luxury as becomes your noble birth how did you come here by foot or in a chariot in a chariot venerable sir then explain sir what that is is it the axle or the wheels or the chassis or reins or yoke that is the chariot is it all of these combined or is it something apart from them it is none of these things venerable sir then sir this chariot is an empty sound you spoke falsely when you said that you came here in a chariot <laughs> you are a great king of india who are you afraid of that you don't speak the truth this king milinda has said that he came here in a chariot but when asked what it was he is unable to show it is it possible to approve of that venerable sir i have spoken the truth it is because it has all these parts that it comes under the term chariot very good sir your majesty has grasped the meaning it is because of the organic matter in a human body and the various aggregates of being that i come under the term nagasena just as it is by the existence of the various parts that the word chariot is used so it is that when the aggregates of being are there we talk of a being most wonderful nagasena extraordinary most extraordinary that you have solved this puzzle difficult though it was if the buddha himself were here he would have approved of your reply Perhaps Buddhism spread to Gandhara through these delightful debates perhaps it spread organically through wandering preachers what we can say for sure is that all the diverse peoples of the northwest of the indian subcontinent followed many religions and spoke many languages 
They came from all over the world to the thriving cities of this place at the frontier of many ethnicities and cultures. Trade and conquest had already made it wealthy. Their cities were splendid with hundreds of thousands of magnificent dwellings like crests of snowy mountains. They were filled with elephants, horses, chariots and pedestrians, with groups of handsome men and women, and were crowded with ordinary people, warriors, nobles, brahmins, merchants and workers. They resounded with a variety of salutations to ascetics and brahmins, and were the resort of skilled men knowing a great variety of things. It had diverse and varied shops for muslin, sweets, flowers and perfumes well and tastefully displayed. Full of silver, bronze and stoneware, they were the abodes of shining treasure. In faraway China, where much of the trading goods that flowed through Gandhara into northern India originated, something interesting happened in the 2nd century BCE. The Han dynasty attacked their warlike, nomadic, horse-riding neighbors to the north. This tribe fled to the west, where it attacked its neighbors. A domino effect soon spread, with larger and larger nomadic confederations forming and slowly moving west like waves, following the wealthy trading routes. They must have heard tales of the wealth of Gandhara and turned their impatient hooves of their foaming steeds towards India. This, as we'll see, would have world-changing consequences that still ripple and echo in the modern subcontinent more than two millennia later. Mm -hmm.